0: Are will reading James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? As a body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats.
1: Good morning, guys. There's more of you than I thought here during this long weekend. My name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors here at Taproot. If you guys are new, which I see some new faces, the way we have our leadership structured here at Taproot is kind of a team pastor eldership thing where um, my main kind of focus and responsibility isn't preaching. I do it every now and then, but my main focus is on our church's small groups, our communities that we call home gatherings. And as we are getting close to fall, I know it hurts to hear, we are in September now, we are going to be focusing. (laughs) I'm pretty happy about that too. I'm not from California. I don't like these two-week summers. Too long for me. But as we're moving into the fall, a lot of us have been on vacation, traveling. As we get back, we're kind of doing this thing throughout September every Sunday called Fall Back into Community. So every week, we're going to have different group leaders from our small groups up here, and we're going to be interviewing them um, asking questions about what their group's like, letting you guys kind of see a snapshot into what that community would look like and encourage you guys that aren't in groups to join one. Um, at Taproot, we believe that our community is not just kind of like a way to shut the back door to kind of keep you in the church or a way to kind of give you something to do because enough people voted and wanted a small group, but we believe that as believers, we were created. All, all humanity was created in the image of God who we believe as Christians, is Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so community is an expression of who God is. We're all built for it. Every single person longs for it. And so as we come together as community, we image God. We do that in certain specific ways throughout the week in our HGs. So if you guys have been at Taproot for a while, if this isn't your first, second, third, fourth time, we encourage you guys to get in an HG. If you haven't yet joined one, Um, you really haven't become a part of Taproot yet. Um, That really is the other half of what we see our church as. We have these two gatherings, one on Sunday and the other throughout the week that are springboards into the rest of our week. So uh, visit a group near you. um, Be kind of listening in throughout this month as we talk about community. And then uh, lastly on this community subject, next Sunday, 7 p.m., I'm going to be teaching a class. We're calling it Core Class Community. And it's not just for leaders. It's not just for people that have you know, and understanding about community. It's about for those that are curious. Like, why does the church focus so much on community? Um, why did God build us this way? So you guys can talk to me to join up for that or talk to someone at the Connect Desk. So with that, join me in prayer, and we're going to jump into James. Father, we, we thank you that as, as images of you, as a community, we can come together, hear of your word, and then together, as a body, respond to what you've called us to And this morning as we look at James 2 and just see this call to action, this this argument against um, a Christianity that's just really lifeless and, and all cerebral, God, we pray that as we walk in rhythms of community as a church, that we would be spurred on by one another towards love and good deeds, that we would be a people whose walk match our talk. So Holy Spirit, convict us this morning. Give us encouragement at the ways you are, growing us to live our lives like Jesus' life. And God, convict us in the areas that we're not. And through your spirit, enable us to live new lives with new ethics. Jesus, we're here to worship you, Lord. Let us hear from your word and let us respond. Amen. So as Devin read this morning... This whole section in James 2, Pastor Jim preached the first section last week, and I'm finishing out this chapter, is what many people would call a diatribe. It's very strong, aggressive, sometimes sarcastic language that James uses around this issue of a lifeless, actionless kind of faith. The heavy tone is unmistakable. He's very focused, and as James goes on through these verses, he builds an argument. Verse by verse, section by section. So that is the plan for this morning, to cover it the same way. And I think James's core argument, you're going to hear me say this over and over this morning, is that action is the fruit of faith. As he skillfully and forcefully dismantles this idea that faith can be on its own and not lead to action, we're going to see three things, and I want you guys to keep these in mind as we go. So before we get into the actual text, note these three things. The first, note James's passion. Let's learn from James's boldness. This isn't just something where we're reading about someone who is bold. He is meant to be an example for us, to be worked up, to be passionate, to be assertive about the right things and in the right way. There's anger here, but James is not out of control. He talked earlier in chapter 1 that there is an anger of man that does not Produce the righteousness of God. Yet James exudes this forceful anger, this a certain kind of anger. And we need to ask ourselves, why does he get worked up the way he does? And then what does he get worked up about? So note his passion, and then also note the problem. There's another well-known Bible author, um, the Apostle Paul wrote a ton of the New Testament, and Paul seems to talk very, very differently about this question of faith and works, and how they relate to each other. So much so that famous Protestants, men that our church kind of takes from their legacy, men like Martin Luther or John Calvin, way back in, I don't know, 16th century or so, um, influenced churches like Taproot in a sense that leads us more towards a Paul-like emphasis of faith and works. And there's a Bible commentator, Doug Moo, who says this about Martin Luther and John Calvin's views. Calvin, while admitting that James seems more sparing in proclaiming the grace of Christ than it behooved an apostle to be, I love any quote that says behooved, <laughs> notes that it is not surely required of all to handle the same arguments. He accepted the apostolic authority of James and argued for harmonization between James and Paul on the issue of justification. But in hindsight, we can see that Luther's excitement of his discovery of the doctrine of justification by faith and his polemic context prevented him from taking a balanced approach to James. We can appreciate the way James and Paul complement one another. Their opponents are different, and their arguments are accordingly different." James was a book that was written first. He's not responding to Paul's view of faith and works, and he's not trying to give a counterbalance to Paul. We have to check our biases and not pit the way these men talk about faith and works against each other. Paul talks a lot about faith. Salvation is by faith alone, and we'll get to that more. But as we go, keep in mind, James' passion, listen to his tone, and keep in mind James's problem and the perspective he looks at it with. Thirdly, the point. We need to note the point. The section is best thought of, I believe, as parenthetical. Chapter 2 is Paul saying, all right, I have this call that I'm giving you guys as a church, but let me step aside and deal with this thing that I think might be holding you up a bit. The problem is not the point. He's moving the problem aside, dealing with it to get back to the point, and if we miss that, we miss the point. James uses very down-to-earth examples to illustrate this is not just a theological issue that people in the ivory tower are dealing with, that academics are writing papers about. This is an on-the-ground, each of us deal with this daily issue. Is our faith being lived out in our actions? Action is the fruit of faith. So let's get into it. Verse 14. I'm just going to take these section by section, verse by verse. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Have you guys ever not followed through on something? <laughs> Most of you are doing really good. Then, at dinner the other night, I asked a question of everybody at the table. Of who or where have you or when have you not followed on through on something you were supposed to do with action or when has someone not followed through for you on something they said they would do with actions and so we were around the table and Jerome he was the one that answered first and quickly you always say you're going to wrestle with us and then at the end of the day you say you're too tired or it's too busy or you know we didn't get something done to make okay guilty there he jumped on that one Vivian was a little more introspective our our second oldest <laughs> And looked at herself and said, you know, sometimes I hide from what I'm supposed to do with schoolwork and pretend I'm busy doing something else, which is good. As we got down to our younger kids, the answers got less serious, (laughs) although I think Theo was trying, and his answer was like, well, sometimes with Emmeline, I uh, say she's on my team when we're playing, but she's really not, just so I can get her out of my way. I'm like, okay, okay, there's that, that's good, (laughs) that's the start. Jubilee is our youngest. She just turned four this week, and her answer was the most thought-provoking of all. Jubilee, <laughs> when, has someone failed you? Or when have you failed someone? When have someone failed you? Her answer, who am I? <laughs> Literally, anything for her response. She thinks the most off-the-wall thing. But then my wife's cut me the most because it's something that, as you guys know who are married, we always fail to follow through. And you see that up close when you are knit together in a marriage. And I think she had a lot more to say, but the one that she focused on was, you often say you'll pack a lunch so we can save money, but you oversleep and you don't. So starting off, um, most of us, I would say, probably all of us, are called both to speak like James, but also to hear James figures speak into our own lives. And as we address failings in each other, as we ourselves are being addressed, I want us to remember, in the same way that James starts, we are brothers and sisters. This is not in the spirit of condemnation, but on encouragement that we can grow if we have the Holy Spirit in us. So, oftentimes my ma- my walk does not match my talk, and I think it's the same with all of us. And in verse 14 it says, if anyone claims to have faith but has no deeds, I don't think what James is meaning is that, these people he's writing to have never in their lives done anything worthwhile, good, or you know, commendable. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think in the context, the deeds that James is addressing, the deeds that aren't there, rather, are deeds of compassion, deeds of mercy, deeds of benevolence. There are certain types of deeds. There are the royal law of loving our neighbor. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims that faith but doesn't care for the least of these? doesn't help the poor, doesn't love the needy, doesn't care for orphans and widows. I think that's what we're supposed to see implied there with the lack of deeds. And his follow-up question in the first verse is, how, or can such a faith save him, save them? It, the answer is, is obviously no, it's, it's rhetorical. But this book is primarily addressed to believers who have already trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection yet are not living lives of dying to their sin, and resurrecting to new ways of living. There's a contradiction. And so when it says, someone claims that faith, can such a faith save them? I, I think I hear air quotes there. I don't think he's saying that it's real faith. It's a claim to have faith. It's such a faith. Save that person. And through that, I think we see that James can't envision a Christian who doesn't start to look like Jesus in their life. He can't conceive of it And neither can I. Faith without works is indeed dead, but it doesn't die because there wasn't enough compassion or there wasn't enough works or belief. It's dead because it was never there to begin with. If there's no fruit, there was no root. One thing we see here as well is that James sees that his readership is bigger than just believers. It's people that do not actually have the root of faith. And saving faith, but think they do. And before I jump to the next verses, I know we're only one verse in so far. I want to address something that I think can impede us um, and that we could use as an excuse to not live with actions, our faith. Our modern worldview believes that faith is a private thing. that's everywhere you go. Our vacation this year, um, we took the family down the coast, down the Oregon coast, and then cut over down around San Jose, Santa Cruz, over to southern Utah, where my wife's family lives. And we had this four days of a family reunion kind of thing. And at the beginning of it, um, we were both a little discouraged as we went to bed because at the very beginning of this family reunion, one of the family members set out these big ground rules for the whole event. And we couldn't help but feel that they were somehow implied to be pointed specifically at us. The big two rules... No talking politics. What would be the second one? Religion. Yeah, you guys you guys have learned well from the society. All right. Now just don't follow that. Um, it seems harmless enough because they're both very controversial topics, but I had the inclination to get a little bit barb-ish and just be like barbed in my response and be like, well, if someone asks me like, what I do for a living, should I just sit there and just smile at them and not say anything? Is that talking religion? You know, should I say something vague of like, well, I, you know, I try to get people to connect with this higher power and to, you know, essentially I'm going to leave people to think I'm a drug dealer at the end of the day. <laughs> but the, the essence, is a silly story, but the essence is Christianity is not really Christianity without words and action. It's not only a belief system, but it's a behavior system. It's not firstly a behavior system, but our belief determines our behavior, as we say over and over here at Taproot. And as Jim spoke on last week, James earlier said that we are to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by a law that gives freedom. Faith will always lead to action. There are no exceptions. There are no Christians on the bench, but we are all out on the field. Stories like this get amens if they end with. And so after she said this, I just went and shared my faith bluntly and broadly and you know, without regard and just started blabbing about Jesus every chance I got. That would be kind of like, good job, you did that. At, you know, I have to see, it. amen, there was an amen there. But here's the thing, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but as Sarah and I prayed about this, we realized that we believe Jesus was calling us to love this woman in our actions, to see what he did through four days of drawing near when she pushed away, of drawing out and asking questions, and trying to be Jesus to her in our actions and see what he did. It was a rough first day, but at the end of the reunion, four days later, she was the one talking religion. She started asking us questions, inviting conversation. It's Mormon County. She had a lot of ideas and opinions, Mormon country. And so she was asking us questions. She was giving her opinions, her takes, At the end of it, this is, I think, the best part of the reunion is the very last thing is this long embrace, this long hug, where she said, I really enjoyed getting to know you, Darren. The actions were completely different than what she was expecting. She was someone that had been extremely hurt by men in her past, and when she saw someone that seemed assertive and bold, she reacted by stiff-arming right away. And it it wasn't just that she was opposed Christianity, she needed to know that she could trust me and know who I was before she wanted to listen. It open doors to speak our faith. And here at Taproot, we firmly hold the salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, but we should not believe that that faith remains alone. Grace enables our faith response to Jesus. He initiates, and we respond. And our response is faith it works, and that is action as the fruit of faith. It's a bundle deal. They come together. There is not one without the other. I'm rhyming now. Nothing that is truly and deeply believed will not flesh itself out in life. That is what incarnating means to live in the flesh what we believe in our hearts. So if I can't see belief, faith, doctrine lived out, Hard pass, no thanks, that's not something I'm interested in because it's lopsided. It's actually hollowed out. It's not real. And so as we continue in his argumentative interlude, listen to where he goes. Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be fed, fed but does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not not accompanied by deeds, is dead. James is a guy that became known throughout history as James the Just. He was that justice guy. He tells them and tells us to love needy believers in practical ways. If someone doesn't have food, if someone's laid off, if someone doesn't have childcare, if someone needs help, figuring out how to fill out an application or a resume. If someone needs a car because their car broke down. Get a meal chain going. Help with money. Help with housing. We can have all the best intentions in the world, but without compassion and action. Intentions are dead in the water. Sometimes we think of the kind of believer that's really out there doing things, that's out there providing for those that are hurting and hungry and needy, lonely, We see them as like super Christian types. They're atypical. They're not the norm. James is saying that's not the way to see this. We should see that there's something significantly off in our hearts if the norm is not loving for, providing for, caring for those around us, particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in need. And if we are inactive now, not helping, not you know, assuming like, well, it's great, we're doing something, meaning the church is doing something, or friends I know are doing something, if that's where our heart is, if we're in that place of inactivity, we might not be where the Pharisees were, but we are on our way. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were a people who may have started out with great intentions, but those distorted. Their right faith distorted into a works-based theology that wasn't really about the real works that God was calling them to. It was about religious nitpicky motions. Jesus talks about this to them in Luke eleven forty-two. 42. Jesus says, even more strongly than James, "'Woe to you Pharisees, "'because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, "'and all other kinds of garden herbs, "'but you neglect justice and the love of God. "'You should have practiced the latter "'without leaving the former undone.'" Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue, which reminds us of earlier in James, right? And respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. So then one of the experts in the law answered him, answered Jesus, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you, experts in the law, woe to you, Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. They wouldn't lift a finger. They reacted defensively. That's that, you're insulting us too. I think Jesus knew that. And like James had two groups of hearers, there are some here that will be insulted by Jesus and Jesus' younger brother James, emphasizing a neglect of justice. For that group, for that first group, God is calling us, James is calling us, Jesus is calling us to repent, to repent of not being willing to lift a finger, to repent of neglecting justice. And as Jesus said in Matthew 11, good news is proclaimed to the poor, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But with the second group, and this is, I believe, a larger group in our church, which greatly encourages my heart. I want to say, I think the Spirit's working in our family. I know there's always room to grow. Um, that's, that's what Christianity is. We are works in progress. But there's amazing acts of love that I'm seeing done, one for another, in our church. And I get to see that up close as a pastor. And I can't tell you how much it encourages me to see us fleshing out our faith and love for one another and that spilling over to those around us in our communities. The church really, truly living as the church. Some of you guys came through last Saturday afternoon out here in the foyer right there. We had thousands and, do- thousands and thousands of dollars worth of items, of clothes, of kids' toys, of books, of kitchen knickknacks, and some random things. I think someone brought like an ant composting thing. <laughs> There's some interesting stuff there, all donated by us to give and help one another, as well as opening the doors for the community to come in to take stuff. We had a sign that says, do you need anything? It's free. That was what we called the care and share. My wife organized it, and as people were asking how did it go, her response was everyone came in from the community with just this confused look of, what are you guys doing? No, really, what, what are you trying to get? How, how are you making money off this? And there was confusion and who's giving this away and why was the most common response, <laughs> which I believe is this underhand pitch for like Jesus gives freely, Jesus gives to us, we're an overflow, which is that's what it is. Like you have these opportunities, these open doors, same way I had with my wife's family of sharing the gospel when you live in a way that's sharing, in your actual life, and it was an amazing thing, and I want to keep doing those kind of things. Second, so encouraging example in the same week, two weeks ago. Um, RHG was discussing one of the sermons, and I shared that earlier that day, um, walking in West Seattle, I met this guy named Eugene, it was a homeless guy, and I invited him to have some pizza slices with me. I was already going to get pizza slices, invited him to come. Um, it was cool, got to hear a little bit of his story. I thought I was gonna be that leader that was like, so you guys should get going on that. And lo and behold, a girl in the group's like, Yeah, I had the same kind of encounter earlier today. I so was walking out of Fred Meyer. Saw this guy that was you know, asking for money and I just had this conversation for I think 20 or 30 minutes and just got to hear his story and really he just needed someone to listen to him and talk to him and not just look the other way as they walked by. I was super encouraging to hear. Right after that, another guy in the group talked about how he was going on this route when he was walking his dog every day and saw another guy that looked kind of down and out and started with just making eye contact, smiling, turning into conversations, knowing his name. Turn into this thing where every single time he makes a point to walk that same path and have an ongoing conversation with this guy, this, this girl in my small group, this guy in my small group, were living with action that flowed out of their faith. It's extremely encouraging. I'm seeing that more and more in our church, this incarnating the gospel of action as the fruit of faith. And so, as, as a whole, I think we're growing in this, and I think God still has further for us to grow into, but I'm very encouraged. Now, verse 18 and 19, James continues to say, but someone will say, he introduces this kind of third-party someone. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. That's, some, that's what I was talking about earlier, about the sarcasm. This is like some serious spiritual, scriptural snarkiness. James is like loaded on thick, like, oh, you believe God's one? Nice job, guys. You got like Judaism 101. This is something that these, these people twice a day would recite. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one." James is loading on this heavy sarcasm. This is where we can see that, that first point is passion coming out. He makes a strong point that if our faith is only shared but not shown, it's worthless. It's, it's hollowed out. It's hypocritical. And ultimately, it's half-hearted. Now, James, as I mentioned, had already talked about there's a certain kind of anger that is fleshly, that's just provoked by, oh, you've offended me. But there's a certain kind of anger that he's demonstrating for. And like I said, why is he angry? What is he angry about? He's angry over people that are marginalized, in this case, the poor, those without food, those without clothes, that are not being loved equally with those that had plenty. His anger is over those that are downcast. His anger is over an exploitation of those that are marginalized. It's the same way, if you think about Jesus, his height of anger in the Gospels the overturning the tables in the temple story, when you read that, he vocalizes why he was angry. He said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, for the Gentiles, for the religiously marginalized of that religion. So his anger is provoked because... The, the Jews of so that day, the leaders, were essentially making an outdoor market in the place that was supposed to be the private and quieter place for Gentiles to pray. His anger was also provoked at an exploitation of the marginalized. So does it bother us when people are exploited? When people are ignored? When people are not loved proactively? Or does it only bother us when it hits close to home? When we can relate Where does your anger most often become provoked? (laughs) Are we angry about injustice in our society? Are we angry about the effects of redlining? Are we angry about the cultural and ethnic effects of police brutality? Are we angry over the amount of foster kids that are in the system and aging out wanting, desiring, longing to be adopted into a family, but aren't. As many Christians don't believe that God's given us that responsibility. Are we angry about the lack of prison reform? About injustice within these systems that are very out of sight and out of mind for many of us? Or does our passion and our anger only get provoked when it hits close to home for us? I think James gives us a picture at when and where and why our anger should be spurred. And as he continues, and he's talking about this hollowed out, half-hearted religion, it's clear in that, that's that line that says, you believe God is one. Throughout this letter, James is very concerned with wholeness, with having a connected faith. He doesn't want us to be double-minded. He wants us to be single-minded. He wants us to have a true and pure religion, not a divided distorted religion. And so he calls God one lawgiver. And he says, we believe that God is one. And the question is, can we live with half a heart? Can faith without actions, can one half of the whole ever work? And his answer is it cannot, and it does not. It'll slowly distort and corrupt even our once pure faith. And so verse 18 is a verse that Most people don't have a consensus on what it means because it seems like James should be saying, someone will say, you have deeds and I have faith. That would seem like it actually makes sense with the flow of the argument. But it seems switched. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. It doesn't seem to fit the whole flow of the section. It doesn't seem to fit within the puzzle of what James is saying. And so... Because there is no consensus, all I have is kind of a leaning to what I think James is meaning here. And so this is the part of the sermon where I say, do not say, thus says the Lord. I do not say, this is what the Bible clearly says. This is what it seems to mean in context when James introduces this third party. It says, someone will say, hey, you have faith and I have deeds. I think grammatically and in the context, the someone he's introducing is someone outside the church. A non-believer looking in. Someone might look in to your body, the way you're living and not even loving one another and say, all you guys have is faith. Even non-Christians can be out here doing those things and you're not doing those things. I believe he's allowing them to see that someone can look in and see that we're saying we have faith, but not actually see the faith that we're proclaiming. James is saying, you can't show your faith without deeds, It needs to be shared and shown. It's like after a catastrophe in someone's life, or even just a national catastrophe, you'll see on social media thoughts and prayers thrown out. Which, at a level, like, prayer is a good thing. God does work through prayer. Prayers are important. But I think where it stings, for some of my non-believing friends that hate to hear that phrase, is all they hear is that. But they don't see a lot of action to correspond with that thoughts, and prayers. Lip service without real service is useless. As the common saying goes, actions speak louder than words. So he continues in verse 22. You foolish person. And foolish here is a Greek word that that means empty. It kind of goes back to this hollowed out, half-hearted thing. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. In case James' point hadn't sunk in, he starts with one of two examples that he gives from the Old Testament, saying this isn't just like a New Testament Jesus thing about faith that leads to action. This is the Old Testament too. James starts with Abraham, this man that God called out of a foreign land, out of the land of Ur, by faith he heeded that call Packed up his family, traveled in, and then God asked him to make the most ridiculous action. He asked Abraham to take his son, Isaac, the same son that God said, I'm going to grow a nation through this boy, and asked Abraham to walk him up a hill and to sacrifice him and to kill him. That's huge. That's immense faith. And and it should shake us a little bit because how could a good God that says he's merciful and just ask Abraham to do this thing that seems so merciless and so unjust? And we'll get to that in a minute. But this section is where we see that tension between Paul and how he talks about works and faith and James and how he talks about works and faith most distinctly. And Paul's audience, as we said before, they, they addressed different problems. Paul's readers had a different problem a ditch on one side of the road, James' readers had a ditch on the other side of the road. And if you want to put up the the slide that kind of contrasts Paul and James, if you look first at Paul, this is the way I would try to summarize it for you guys. Paul is communicating through his letters in the New Testament that the root of action is faith. Don't focus so much on works if you don't have faith. That's Paul's focus, that you plus works doesn't equal faith. James, the other side of the coin, but the same coin, focuses on the fruit of faith is action, and that you plus Jesus should always equal a certain type of living. The next verses, chapter chapter, uh, 2, verse 23, and scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is not considered righteous by by what you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So Abraham is an extremely strong start as an example of faith. He'd be kind of the first guy that comes to mind for Jews that are trying to think of like who's a good faith character from our Old Testament. And it doesn't make sense. Like I said, why would a god who's merciful and just request this action that seems so unjust? So unmerciful. In the book of Hebrews, we hear a little bit of behind the scenes, what was going through Abraham's mind. He trusted, he had faith in who God was to the extent that he knew that God was asking him to do something so he would obey and trust. And if he did, God would raise his son from the dead. He believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. And as the story turns out, God brings a substitute, an animal. This picture of Jesus as our substitute, to take on our death that we deserved, to be the sacrifice for us. And so Abraham had this faith that led to immense or this immense faith that led to this crazy action of walking up that hill prepared to do what God had called him to do. And so does helping someone who's hungry or housing a homeless person, does that take as much faith as Abraham showed? I think the answer is no. Like that, that seems like that would be a little bit easier of an ask if God called us to do that. He had great faith saying, God, I don't know how you can be pleased with this. I don't think you are, but I'm going to follow through and see what you do because I believe you'll do something miraculous. And God did. The question is, what is God asking you and I to bring to him and put on the altar? Where is God saying you believe? Yes, great. You believe this is God. Great. Will you sacrifice this for me? Will there be an action that corresponds with your faith? Will you take the steps? Is there someone you need to break up with? Is there someone you need to confess sin to? Is there a check that needs to be written for someone that God's placed on your heart? Do you need to start showing up to that group that you're convicted about? Do you need to start volunteering in that area that's been on your heart? Do you need to pursue and befriend that person you haven't met? Do it. Let your faith be seen. Let your faith be considered or countered, counted or seen as righteousness to those that desperately need to see God through you. Your action as the fruit of your faith. In the second example, Rahab, we see in verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? You guys can look through that story and read it. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but this example is different for a reason. Abraham was the shoe in for faith, right? He'd be kind of first guy to come to mind. Rahab probably last, last pick for like team faith in the Bible. She'd be the most glossed over. Like, oh yeah, then there's that example of, of Rahab. She was not even a Jew. She was a Gentile. And catch the phrase, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, counted righteous? It should tip us off. I mean, her, her actions of faith that she did weren't even religious actions. She wasn't involved in the Jewish customs, the things of the people of God. She was hospitable when God put it on her heart to open her door to the needy, to people that may have been dangerous, to people that, from her point of view, were foreigners spies and yet her faith that may have looked small compared to abraham's was enough to justify her before god in accordance with her actions she wasn't the religious girl she wasn't a churchgoer but she had compassion mercy and hospitality As an outsider, and if that someone earlier was an outsider looking in, it makes total sense why James would end this little section with, and even Rahab, that person, she was able to respond in faith in a way that shames some of us. God works outside of what we typically assume he will. And those people in that day, the women in that day, they didn't go into prostitution because there's other options and they just decided to. She was a place that was she was in the lowest in that place, and yet she still took that huge step of faith. She didn't pack up her family, set off to an unknown land, or climb a mountain, or sacrifice her child. All she did was open a door with a heart of hospitality, and it says she was saved in the same way, by faith. In the last verse of the section, James sums up the argument in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So I spent a lot of time saying that action is the fruit of faith. It's been kind of the the recurring motif. And that's true, but if you're convicted by James and leave this morning saying, I'm I'm really going to try better, and that hit hard, I'm really going to just try more, try harder, do better, that's not the step that I would pray you take. If you want Jesus to be a religion for you, that's the step to take. But if you want Jesus to have a relationship with you, your first step won't be, I'm going to try harder. Your first step is, I'm sorry. I'm convicted. I'm cut. I'm not going to get away from that conviction by trying to work and distract myself and try to get right again, make it up to him, but a confession of, I'm sorry. I haven't obeyed. Like the Pharisees, I have not lifted a finger. Will you forgive me? And Jesus is the only one who has both lived and exercised perfect faith, perfect obedience to his Father, and perfect action. So then our faith is not about the amount of faith we have. We can have a Rahab level of faith or an Abraham level of faith. And yet, it's about the person that the faith is in. Jesus had the perfect amount of faith. And so whether we are small or large in our faith, Jesus is the only one that can save us. Jesus, when he died, took on our failures and credited his righteousness to us. It says, it is yours if you'll take it transferring his perfection, his perfect faith and his perfect action to those that are imperfect in faith and far from perfect in action. The results of faith, of meeting Jesus, is action, but it's not the means to meet Jesus. And once you've met him, once it's a relationship, not a religion, that God changes our desires from within. He changes what we want, and then how we live. I don't know about you guys, but I want desperately to be used by God, to let others, not for my own sake, but to let others come to know God through seeing God lived out through me. And we can waste our life. That's not the hard thing to do. That's not a hard action. We can sit on our hands, we can and we could even we could even have no one call out call that out in us we could be excused very easily in our culture from just sitting on our hands but i don't want to settle for that i can walk through my life with the eyes of jesus the heart of jesus hands that are healing words that are soothing arms that hold the sobbing and faithful hands that work whether we're seen or unseen it's hard but it takes action And the Spirit has promised to help us through that confession, through admitting our actions aren't enough and our faith isn't enough, but Jesus' faith and action is. Let's do that as we pray to him now. Father, you've not left us with a high bar and held a clipboard to watch whether we'd make it or not. you met that high bar. You exceeded it. You live in perfection on earth, leaving the comfort of heaven out of love and mercy for us, satisfying the justice that was due us for our sin through the death of your son. So Lord, we don't have to try harder. But Lord, let us inspect our hearts there is a glaring omission of action in our life, if there is a glaring lack of compassion, if there is a glaring heartlessness, Lord, expose that through your spirit. And then through that same spirit who enables us to walk like Jesus, change our hearts so our lives can be changed, so we can be pictures of you to those that need desperately to both hear of you and to see you. Amen.